Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the Tap Talks HR podcast. Today I am talking to Peter Clark, co-founder of ClearSight, about the concept of organisational fitness. Hi Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hi Anthony, thanks for having me. No worries at all. Well, so Peter, do you want to start by giving us a bit of a background about ClearSight itself and why you founded the organisation? Yeah, we were consultants uh, initially and we were working with a lot of organisations to try and get them to build better strategies so that their people would be more effective, you know, to deliver value from their people model. Um, but what always confused us was that when we were engaging those organisations, they didn't have the data. So they were quite good at having intuitive senses of what was going on, but they lacked that evidence-based decision process. And uh, eventually we came to the conclusion that we should support that. And fundamentally, the best form of data is data gathered from people. So we started surveying them, doing language analysis to get to the heart of what they felt, what they think, asking them really difficult questions, which then revealed meaningful differences. So our fundamental belief is that if you want to make smart decisions, you need evidence to inform it. And we want to provide the best possible evidence to make the best possible people decisions. Fantastic. And I know that here at ClearSight, you guys are really into the qualitative language and what that can provide for you. But I know also that you've been working quite hard recently about this concept called organisational fitness. Yeah. So for our listeners out there, what do we mean when we say organisational fitness? We mean an organisation that's fit for purpose, that it's got the elements which come together to deliver an organisation which is effective for its purpose and its meaning. So we uncovered these elements by working with lots and lots of different organisations, um, looking at surveys which covered thousands of questions on hundreds of thousands of employees and we just found that some questions were more meaningful than others. Um, so questions about whether you have a best friend at work didn't seem to correlate to anything important. So we would take people's answers, then look at the business KPIs or simple uh, HR metrics and look for questions that seem to be able to predict future behaviour. So that question, do I have a best friend at work, doesn't seem to correlate to anything important, so why do we ask it? But there were other questions which consistently seem to be important. You know, do I have the right tools to do the job? Do I find my work meaningful? Um, am I supported by my manager? Fundamental questions about the workplace which when we cross-correlated it, not just with future employee behaviours, but actually company financial performance, we could see clear patterns. And over time, we distilled those down, and what we arrived at was 16 questions, which we think collectively define whether an organisation is fit for purpose. And we believe that if you examine yourself through that lens, you have a meaningful insight about what you should do next, where you are today, and actually the true working conditions of your company and whether it will deliver what you want it to, which is ultimately a financially uh, well-performing organisation, one that makes money, is growing, uh, but also one that has a great employee experience and is full of people who are doing what they want to do, which is delivering great customer service and doing a great job. Because that's what I really think people want to do when they come to work. They want to do a great job. And I know your, your research touched on the area of productivity. Um, so do you want to give us a little bit of a deeper view about your research and, and what you found? Because I, 
I'm always interested to, to, to get to the bottom of research and actually share it with practitioners because I think HR practitioners are so busy being busy, they sometimes yeah. don't get a chance to read the deep report. So is there kind of like an executive summary of, of findings you could give? Yeah, I mean, the day job always gets in the way, doesn't it? I, so the, um, the research effort for us was we didn't want to just have a framework. What we wanted to do was actually contribute to... Yeah, the understanding of what it means to be strategic in an organisation to make good decisions. And we wanted to test that independently. So the first thing we did is we said um, we have to work with a research agency and make sure the test is fully independent and independently verified of anything we think. We then used them to build a sample of 2,000 companies in the UK, all regions, north, south, east, west, all industries, various sizes, maturities, a representation of Britain and the organisations within it. And then we asked the 16 questions to give us some open text questions to try and get some of that language analysis going. And we cross-correlated what they said with the growth rates of those companies, the profitability, the levels of customer service, you know, their attrition, etc., etc. And what we were looking for is validation of what we had discovered in our work with individual companies, but across a broad slice. And the results were pretty staggering. You know, the companies which were uh, lower scoring across those 16 questions were lower growth. The questions which then became important for us were, okay, if they're lower growth, is there a certain pattern of questions which seem to be most important for the high growth companies? And you find that actually innovation is a pre predictor of growth. It's not a big surprise maybe, but actually we can quantify how big that is. So you're 16 times more likely to be a high-growth company if you've got one of the top scores in innovation. We could see what the issues were in terms of fitness across the UK. So less than half people in the UK that we spoke to in all of those organisations felt they've got the right tools to do their job, which is a pretty depressing thing. It feels like people are handicapped. But what we wanted to do is just raise up awareness of what we have found in our work with lots of really great, amazing employers, big brands in the UK, and just shared that publicly. So we wrote it up in a report, summarised the findings, showed the patterns that we discovered in the data, but our fundamental message is that well-performing organisations are just more successful. So the old mantra of, you know, you should invest in your people because it delivers great performance, well now we can quantify it. So well actually, an improvement in purpose, which is a kind of big buzzword these days, will actually genuinely make you more profitable. People who believe they've got meaning in their work uh, are able to help the companies that they work for achieve higher returns, which is important. And then that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking of my own little adage there about culture eats strategy for breakfast and, and, and yeah. things like that. And um, so there's basically what, what the language is telling you, what the, the, to get down to the, the, the finite bit is, is that there's lots of different types of engagement going on and you've got the top-down engagement, the setting the structure, but allowing people to have that autonomy to innovate actually gives them meaning in work, which in that case then motivates them, which gets engagement kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I mean, it's funny you said about the culture because in the language analysis, we looked at all the patterns of language. So when people were talking about culture work, what else do they talk about? So what actually drives culture? And um, if you look at a lot of textbooks, it's about role modelling, it's about leadership. 
Actually, what we found in our analysis is about meetings, how they're convened, how people communicate with each other in that meeting. It's about the processes of the company. It's actually about the constructs of the organisation itself, which then sets the tone of the culture quite often. And I think that was one of our big revelations is, sure, we've got these 16 questions and they're strongly agreed, strongly disagree. That's neat from an analytical point of view because it gives you a score. But the language really unlocked what was going on with those different scores. So where you see people who've got no meaning in their work or, to use your example, they cite bad culture. What they really talk about is we've got bad processes which drive bad behaviours. We've got poor meeting etiquette which actually drives bad behaviours and bad culture. And you can start to build the picture by going one step further. And my favourite thing about it was we asked one question was um, how do you describe your work to your friends and family? You go home at the end of a busy day, what do you tell your friends and family? Top answer is stress and pressure across the UK, which for me was quite a sad uh, revelation. But if we look across sectors, that answer is very, very different. So some sectors, it's just not a big thing. And other sectors, for example, the legal sector, is five times more likely to be stressed in their language analysis than any other. So a really rich picture kind of tells the story of working Britain in that research, yeah. And that's interesting. Was there any kind of connection in the legal profession with the concept of billable hours? So <laughs> that, that thought that you need to be always billing kind of thing adds that kind of pressure. Because I was in a legal company recently and they were talking about their leadership and this conflict between billable hours as a, t- t- as a legal barrister, but actually also having to manage the team. The managing the team bit came secondary because they, yeah. they had to focus on the billable hours. That is the output of a law firm. It's mm. the more hours you work, the more money you make, and there is enormous pressure to get that done. And I, th- I think that's, that's the thing for us, is that we actually looked within the legal sector and there's big variations in performance. And there's good evidence just that some companies, some legal firms, just to pick on them, but we looked at all sectors, <laughs> um, if they were to look at their organisational model and actually perhaps try and break out of that, Um, So we spoke briefly about innovation. The legal sector overall has the lowest innovation score. But the companies that do do well on that score within the legal sector are by far and away the highest performing in terms of their financial performance. And I think there's huge opportunities to innovate in what has been, I would say, an industry which hasn't done a lot of things differently for quite a while. Which, you know, makes sense. It's a partner model, analysts, uh, sorry, uh, junior lawyers, work for the partner and they will operate on that billable hour structure which does create stress and pressure and thus the circle is completed in the story. And it's interesting isn't it because um, I've I've had a lot of conversations this year around engagement to different HR leaders and and it all seems to end up with that interaction between the line manager and the employee and and the environment that is created for that employee by, by the line manager themselves and it sounds like some of the things that you're finding probably correlates with that a bit, do you think? It does, but I'd, I'd say a lot of things we're looking at are quite strategic and can okay. be set top down. And I'd, I'd really encourage um, yeah, anybody who's reading the research or anybody who works with us, what we try to do is paint the results of any survey we do for a company or any organisation we work with in the same way we painted the, the research, which is to say, Let's look at things holistically across the whole organisation. Your manager is one thing. Are you supported by your manager? 
but your manager actually has relatively low influence on big things. So let's take that tool score. Your manager isn't going to help you get a better toolkit. That's dictated by a department that sits kind of far away. And actually, that's a big strategic question. Have we got the right systems to support our people? And I think that is such a big question that it translates into a really interesting conversation between an HR leader and the CEO or the CTO who's actually in charge of technology investment, where we can start to say, look, looking at the feedback of our people, trying to create a really effective organisation goes beyond the normal remit of what an HR professional is thought to do. It actually talks about, are we enabling our people? What are they telling us that they need to do a great job? And then encouraging them to have conversations with the other leaders of the organisation to really engage in how we're going to build a better business or an organisation that's fit for purpose at a strategic level. And a manager's undoubtedly really, really important. But actually, most of the things that affect a person's working life is set by a policy or a process or something which is set at a higher level than just the immediate line manager, which they can't influence. I'm not undermining the importance of the line manager. I think they're vital. But I actually think the big conversation needs to be had at the top level. You know, what is our communication strategy? Do people feel informed? Are we empowering our people by letting them make decisions themselves? Have we set a clear purpose? Inclusion. Are we inclusive? collectively. Huge, huge drivers of company performance and organisation fitness and things that the HR professionals uh, everywhere should be deeply interested in because those are strategic topics and that's what we all want. HR strategy. And I think it's, it's interesting isn't it and I, I totally get your point that actually there's this, this relationship you need to set the structure first. It's yeah. almost like um, I don't know, an analogy of like a, a farmer's, you have different farmers who could be the managers but you still need great soil a great plow and everything to begin with to be able to 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 be a farmer kind of thing so if you don't set your business up properly it's going to fail that that's 100 percent, and that's something that i i feel quite strongly about is because a lot of the trends in the way people are managing engagement is to push it all on the manager and tell the manager okay this is your score for your team and you need to do better And we always encourage something which says, actually, as an organisation, let's pick a collective priority, something we could all be better at, and then encourage the leadership to say, well, look, we will do this as a leadership. We'll either provide new tools and then make an ask of the manager and say, now support us in making this change effective by telling us how to deliver it, but also embedding that in your teams. So it's much more of a collaboration in the change process. Leadership can't just blame managers for poor engagement. They've got to acknowledge, in your analogy, whether they've given the right ploughs, the soils versatile, whether the environment for that team is well set up, which can often be outside of the manager's control. So what we're trying to encourage in our thought is, let's have one view of the organisation, from leadership all the way down to a manager, a shared agenda, pick one important thing to change, and engage the whole organisation in making that better. So, and you mentioned the, the fact that you've got this bridge between HR leadership and, and the Exco, the CEO, and that's probably one of, from my experience and actually people I've spoken to, one of the biggest challenges, how do you get this, this insight you have into people onto the board's agenda and actually get this strategy? And I know that's something you guys have worked quite hard at. So what 
did you do that you think that, that made that conversation easier? You start to use the language of the leadership team. So one of the things that I think is an uncomfortable truth about the HR profession um, is that they are sometimes seen as fluffy. And it's far from fluffy. You know, that's, that's the truth of it. You're dealing with the real issues of the business and you're looking at it from a people lens. But often businesses don't understand what is being spoken about because it's not using their language. So if I say to a CEO, are you worried that your people don't have the right tools for the job? He'd absolutely be worried about that. If I talk to them about whether they've set the right strategy or whether the vision resonates with people, they're worried about that. Communication, those things are shared topics between the leadership team and the people teams. Where they start to get lost is questions which are perhaps not driving at something they can actually change or isn't already on their agenda. And that's where the disconnect comes from. Because the HR profession talks one language and sometimes the leadership team talks a slightly different language. And all we would say is, let's just take the people lens but talk about it using the same words that are already on the management agenda. And that just brings the two parties closer together. They've got one shared understanding of what the organisation is doing, what the challenges are, and then when we've got that language analysis, which really gets to the, the truth of people's working lives, you can connect those two things together. So I, I would say our big effort is to work with our clients to get their voice heard by the leadership team by taking the same things that they care about and just putting it in the words and the common vernacular of the CEO, the CTO, the CFO. And if you can do that and you can also say, by the way, this thing in our organisation will drive huge benefits in terms of customer service levels, you have their attention. You've got the business case, you're using language they understand, but you're reflecting the views of your organisation, your people, and getting their agenda into the leadership team's agenda by just crossing the bridge by using the same language. So I suppose it's, it's gaining the feedback of the voice of the employee, but not just taking it as far as engagement, Yeah. but taking it one stage further and taking it into every single part of an exco or leadership team's decision-making year kind of thing, everything that they have. It needs, you're making that one final jump, aren't you? Yeah. Whereas you used to get an engagement score, which is what is a score anyway, but, uh, but actually that going one further to get it right into the meaningfulness of the Exco. That's, that's it. So I think engagement was a really good construct to help people understand you know, how people feel connected to work. But I think if you just go one step further, which is often called the engagement drivers, you actually get to the nub of what do people want to change and you can also connect that back to the quality of the work they do and how committed they are to it. And then you have the leadership team. But the one thing that completes that is to make sure that you're providing that feedback in line with the management team's decision cycle. So quite often we see a survey come out in a quiet moment for the business, but it's three months later that the business is then meeting to talk about their strategy or their priorities. Actually, if you do the survey just in the run-up to that meeting and you're giving the HR leadership or the people team leadership 
the ammunition to go into that room and say, look, from our point of view, the feedback we've got is there's a massive challenge with communication here and we need to focus on that because that's going to be a key driver of us delivering these change initiatives. And I've got evidence for that. It cross-correlates to, I'll, I'll pick on customer NPS scores again. All of a sudden you're at the races because you've got their agenda in the lens of the people um, and you've also brought it to the table at the point where they're making a decision. So the survey cycle has to fit with the management decision cycle too and, and that's one of our key bits of advice. Time your survey to give the information when people need it, when they're making a decision. If it's outside of that cycle, it just gets lost. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because so often um, you, you see organisations always seem to, for some reason, doing their engagement survey in October or November for some reason, because yeah. it's the end of the calendar year. Well, it's a quiet time. <laughs> it's yeah. a quiet time. So yeah. you're always cognizant of that. But actually, the engagement survey should be an input into what the management team are about to talk about. So, I mean, that timing is absolutely fine if the big strategy meeting is in the end of December. But if it's not, it's not useful. And also the engagement score is something people care about, but they just can't quite connect that to how they're going to make the business better. And it's not connected to the agenda of the other people. So we're just saying, just go one step further. We still do engagement scores uh, because people really understand that. It's a well-accepted concept. But we encourage people to also look at their fitness score, which is a much more... A tangible connection to the agility, visibility of the organisation, whether it's enabled and whether it's aligned, but those kind of concepts. I love the, I love the idea of uh, what you're doing is you're engaging the leadership team into the engagement process by, by listening to their needs and actually designing the engagement system around the needs of the leadership team. There's yeah. almost a, an irony in it. <laughs> right, but it's kind of funny because people, when they do an engagement survey, they feel like they're not being heard. That's one of the biggest things. It's like, I don't trust that anything will come out of a survey. And we kind of blame leadership and say, well, they're not listening clearly enough. But actually, maybe we're just not speaking clearly enough and using the language that they understand so that they can then, to use your analogy, engage with engagement. Hmm. And that's the bridge we want to connect. Because if you do that, you can actually deliver actions, you can affect change. And that's what it's all about. I mean, what's the point of a survey? If it doesn't move the dial, if it doesn't affect some kind of outcome. And that's our frustration with the traditional engagement surveys. They just fall one step short. They just need to get the results into a format that the leadership team really care about, can engage with, and they start to then deliver results. And then the people feel heard, and then we start to feel that the organisation itself is improving, and it's a self-perpetuating circle. And it is fascinating. We could talk forever about this, but unfortunately, I have a time limit on my podcasts. Fair enough. Which is about the length of a tube journey or something like that. But if if you wanted our HR listeners to this podcast to take something away from the conversation today, maybe think about something or go and do something or reflect on something, what would you want them to be thinking as they press stop on their podcast? I would just encourage them to think about whatever it is that they present in terms of their survey results or other KPIs or other metrics. Go down the list and decide which one of those does the leadership team really care about and where can we start to build that bridge. And if you can't build that bridge, I mean, it's a free resource, that uh, research paper, it's on our website. Have a read of it, maybe it will give you a few ideas. Um, but 
regardless of that, just get that conversation going so that you can take the voice of the people in your organisation and put it into the management agenda by meeting them halfway. Just start to talk about the things which they are already talking about and then offer the views of the people on those topics and then you'll start to see change happening. And that's the whole point of it, isn't it? It's to improve the working lives of people, but to build a better organisation which is more fit for purpose and which can deliver more for everybody. And, and that's, that's what I'm passionate about. And that's, and that's links into the whole world of sustainability, isn't it? Because by organisational success, you have sustainability, which means that people can get paid for a number of years into the future. People have security, which isn't what we're all trying to achieve. Well, productivity for me is not a dirty word because productivity is what drives improvement in living conditions. It puts money in people's pocket. It's what pays for healthcare. It's really the driver of our collective well-being as a society. And I think that's also true of organisations themselves. So for us, you want to be able to square that circle. And actually, our definition of sustainable companies are ones where the people are treated really well, where the working conditions are such where they can be more creative, more innovative, more productive, which then creates better financial outcomes for the company, where they share that back with the people, and then those companies persist for years to come. And there's loads of evidence to suggest that. And actually, that's a big thing for us. We think things like people metrics should be in annual reports. They should be made available to investors so investors can judge the fitness of the organisation which they are about to invest in and then have an objective view about whether that organisation is fit for purpose and whether it's going to sustain over five, ten years. And it's not just a terrible sweatshop which should be shut down immediately, which could be a really important new lens and decision-making in the general societal context, but that's now a whole new topic. I was going to say, that's, that's <laughs> podcast two, right? Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, the, the great thing for me is, uh, I know you're, you're really super passionate about what you do, and it's nice for maybe the listeners to hear that behind the organisations like ClearSight, that there are people who are putting time and effort into creating something that might just be seen on the outside as an engagement tool or something mm-hmm. like that, but actually the thought that goes in to trying to, to make these as effective as a can to, to help people's lives. It's really interesting to talk to you. So thank you very much for sharing Thanks all for this to me. Yeah. And, um, Obviously, as Peter said, you can download the research paper. It's clear sight with a Q, just in case you were typing it away with a, without a Q. Um, but that's it for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, you can find out more about the subjects of engagement and productivity at tapsolutions.com. Um, but uh, we'll speak to you soon. So thanks for listening to Tap Talks HR. <laughs>